our, our series um, called Heal. And I've titled this, uh, today's series, or today's talk, uh, Suffering from Sin. And we've been looking at this big question with a series. The big question has been, how do we heal from sin and from being sinned against? And so the last three weeks we've talked about the problem, the problem being sin. And as a result of that, we're separated from God because of our sin. And um, we looked also at the remedy of the problem, which is the gospel in Jesus. And then last week, Kim talked about the fight of faith. Because once you become a Christian, there are these instruments of grace that God gives to us, namely the Word of God, the Bible, uh, community in the church. Um, those kinds of things are instruments of His grace so that we can have the fight of faith and actually walk through our sanctification. Now, this does not mean that you, um, this fight of faith is done on your own. This is not what we're implying here. These are instruments of grace that he has given us so that we can become sanctified and grow in our walk with him as we walk with him. So today we're going to be looking at, um, at part of that fight of faith because part of the fight of faith is, is how you and I handle suffering, how we respond to others treating us uh, in sin, how, we, how, you, how you and I respond to sin. So there are two kinds of sufferings that Christians face. The first kind of suffering is Suffering as a result of catastrophes, disease, accidents. The second kind is suffering because of someone else's sin. And so today we're talking about the second kind of suffering, suffering as a result of someone else's sin against you. And part of the fight of faith is, is how we handle it when someone sins against us, how we handle it when someone um, does us wrongly. And so um, today we're dealing with that question and that issue, how we handle it when someone sins against us. You know, um, about five, six years ago, I was, um, it was a Wednesday night, and there was a girl that was coming here kind of off and on uh, throughout the year, and she was one of those kids that I would call marginal kids. Like, she wasn't really a part of our group fully. She would just come and go um, from week to week. And what she, um, I could tell she was troubled one night, and so one night she and her friends uh, pulled me aside, and they said, we need to have our friend tell you something that's pretty, it's pretty heavy on her heart right now. So went to a breakout room with her and her friends, and, and this girl began to talk and share. And through tears that night, she just shared with me how um, her dad is an abusive father, and how her dad had been abusing, abusing her brother and beating him, and whenever he, he's punished, like she would literally just get beaten because of what he'd done. And her brother also came to our group for a while as well. And so as this girl is sharing this with me, her dad walks into the room. And here I am seeing the guy that she's talking about, and everything in me, of course, wanted to react and, and, and get defensive here, but he, he just came in and said, hey, what's going on? And she wiped her tears away real fast and said, oh, I just got injured out in the parking lot, my knee hurts, and totally just blew it off and lied to her dad because she didn't want him knowing what she was really saying about him. And so um, later on, of course, we had to, I have to report those kinds of things, so I did, and, and later on... Um, I wish I could say this story had a happy ending, but it does not, as far as I know today. But um, mom and dad end up getting divorced later on, and, and more abuse comes out. Dad has a restraining order against him from the family, and just an ugly, ugly situation. And this girl quit coming to our church. But whenever I would see this girl at school, there was just a look of sadness about her, just a look of just utter sadness in this girl's life. And I couldn't help but, when I saw this girl, to think that, I can't help but think that her dad's sin 
shaped her view of God. What she saw at home shaped how she viewed God. And I can't help but think that in this room, there are stories in this room with you guys that, um, that the, what you've seen at home, what you've experienced at home, whether it's parents getting divorced, whether it's abuse, whether it's neglect, whatever the case might be, whether it's even people who claim to be Christians sinning against you, whatever it, it might be, I can't help but think that what's happened to you has shaped your view of how you view God and shaped your view of Christianity and the church and how you think about God. And I know what happens um, whenever we experience those kinds of things, what I hear from many of you is this temptation to reject God because of what you've experienced. And on the one hand, I understand that emotional response. I do. I get it. I understand that. But I want you to think, I'm going to press here just a little bit on this. Um, Many people reject God because someone hurts them. And while I understand how they get there, we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, why did that person do that to you? And the answer to that question is, they weren't living in line with the gospel when they treated that, you that way. They weren't living in light of Jesus and the gospel when they sinned against you in that way. So in a sense, they rejected Jesus and they sinned against you. And I want to press this morning into you this idea that how much sense does it make for you to also reject Jesus in the same way then? Which will lead to more pain for yourself, more pain for others that you cross paths with throughout your life. This is the deception I think that Satan is so good at, is that he somehow gets you, who's been sinned against, to reject Christ, even though Christ agrees with you that it was sin, even though Christ agrees with you that it was wrong, and yet somehow you end up embracing the world and rejecting Christ doing the very same thing that person did, which caused them to sin against you. This is a a, a huge deception, I think, that Satan wants you to get tripped up on so you'll reject Christ and and follow after yourself. And so so when someone sins against us, I think the knee-jerk reaction for us is we tend to to blame God for that. We, We feel like he has abandoned us, and so we start to turn away from him And the good news is that if that's where you're at this morning, you're not alone as you walk through those kinds of places in your life. We see the same kinds of responses uh, with the people of Israel. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 43. And I can't remember a time when I've preached from Isaiah, so this must be a first. Isaiah chapter 43. looking at verses just 1 to 4 from Isaiah 43. To give you some background um, of this passage, Israel is in captivity in Babylon. So Israel, God's chosen people, God has chosen to reveal himself to that nation in a very specific way, and so he's given them the promised land, yet um, throughout their history they've had people come in from the other places and, and and, and take them captive and take them off their land and take them to the other part of the empire. And so in this situation, it's the Babylonian captivity. And so on a grand scale as a nation, they have been sinned against. 
It feels like they've been totally just sinned against and violated here as a nation. And it feels like God has left them, like God has abandoned them altogether. And I know whenever you and I read the Bible, it's easy for us to look at the nation of Israel and kind of depersonalize it. And so this morning, I want you to understand, like, these are, are real people that are being talked about here. Um, we, we can't see it as these people with no face. These people have, they have a face, they have emotions, they have feelings. As a nation, they have those things as well. And so um, I want you to think through this in, in, in that sense. These are real people the Bible's talking about. Look at verses uh, 1 to 4. It says this in verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. So with the background in mind, they're in captivity in Babylon, and in a sense, they feel very sinned against right now as a nation. In the middle of that captivity, what does God say? His first couple of words, he says, fear not. Now the question we might ask is, okay, really, fear not? We've been taken from our land. We're living under captivity somewhere else. I mean, imagine you in your situation if someone invaded us as a nation, took you and your family captive, took you somewhere else to live, and in the middle of that, you've got God saying to you, fear not, right? And, and so we've got to ask the question, how, how can God say this kind of thing considering their circumstances, I want you to look all the way at the end of this passage in verse, uh, still in verse 1. The words God says, he says, you are mine. He says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And so even though their circumstances say something totally different, even though it feels like God has left them, like he has abandoned them, like he's left them for dead, even though it feels like that to them, he still says, I've called you by name, and you're mine. And I think the same is true for us. If you're a follower of Christ, you belong to him. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. You're his. Even if it feels like, based on your circumstances, that he's left you, you still belong to him. You're his. You belong. You know, it doesn't always feel like God is with us. And I think especially when someone sins against us in a real horrible way, it really feels like God has left us. It really feels like God has abandoned us. And so usually when someone does this to us, you and I have one of two responses, either fight or run. Now this may not be literal, but the responses we normally have when someone sins against us is we either want to fight it, protest it, defend ourselves, or run, flee, avoid, ignore. Those are our two responses when it comes to this, this kind of thing. And usually when someone sins against us, we want to sin right back. We trade sin for sin. We trade blow for blow. Think about any friendship breakdown you have had throughout your life. What does it almost always go back to? It goes back to sin. Now, occasionally you'll have a, a friend that they just start liking something that you just don't have any interest in, and, and so you just kind of part ways. There wasn't anything bad about that, just kind of the way it happened. But most of the time, when you break off a friendship, it's usually because of something happened that was sinful between you, or at least perceived as sinful between you. 
And so what happens is that leads to fear. And, the, and you start to sort of callous yourself over and think, you know what? I've got to protect myself. Someone's going to do that to me again. That person's going to do that to me again. I can't handle that. I'm going to run away from this friendship or this relationship. Now, when the Bible here says, um, fear not, it's not like God is saying, don't worry. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Fear not. Because when you look at verse 2, look down at verse 2. It says, when you, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers... They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. So here God's not talking about literal floods, literal fires. It's symbolic of suffering. And this does not mean that you and I should go seek out suffering. But the Bible here says, when you, when you pass through waters, when you pass through fire, when you suffer, suffering is going to happen. James, the book of James talks about this for the Christian life, that when you suffer, when you encounter various trials and suffering, that's not optional. It's going to happen to anyone who lives on this earth. And so what's our biggest temptation whenever we suffer? Again, we feel abandoned by God. We feel like he's left us, like he's totally just left us for dead. And that's why here God says the words. Look in verse 2. He says what? He says, I will be with you. I want you to latch on to those words for a minute because if I am reading you correctly, I'm going to guess that many of you have felt that when you've gone through someone has sinned against you in in a horrible way and you feel like not just abandoned by them, but also abandoned by God. And so God knows, how comforting is it to know that God knows the very thing you and I are going to struggle with when we feel sinned against. Abandonment. So what does God say to his people? He says, I will be with you. He's reminding because he knows where their struggle is. He knows just the words that they need to hear in this moment. He knows what your struggle is going to be that you're going to feel like he's totally left you, like he's totally abandoned you. It's true for Israel, and it's also true for us. And so whoever has sinned against you, and I don't know your, your situation, but no, no matter how abandoned you feel by others or by God, God says, I am with you. He says, I will be with you. How comforting is it to know that in spite of how humans have let you down, in spite of how People have failed you and sinned against you to know that the God of the universe remains with you. To know that he remains with you as your father. Look down at verse uh, 4. It says, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. And so verses uh, 2 and 3 say that we're going to suffer. And so often we suffer because someone has sinned against us. Then verse 4, so 2 and 3 say that we're going to suffer. Verse 4 says, you are precious to me and I love you. And so this raises a question for the Christian because if we are really precious in his eyes and he truly loves us, then why does he allow us to pass through 
suffering? This is a question of many people um, in our world today. This is the one thing the Bible never really spells out for us. The Bible never spells out for us, okay, this is why you suffer, point one, point two, point three. The Bible never spells it out for us like that. And one thing I want to ask you this morning is, what would you and I do with the information if God really gave that to us? Like, so let's say you experience some suffering in your life, and you're praying to God, you're asking God, why God, why did this happen? And what if an angel appears and just lays out for you an outline of, let me just tell you why this happened to you. Bam, 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 right? Would that really help you in that moment? Would, Would that really bring great comfort to you? To know all the reasons why? Like, think about if you went and touched a hot stove, and you're screaming in pain, right? And then someone comes along and says, well, you know why that hurts, right? Let me explain this to you. There are nerves in your fingers, and when you touch the hot stove, they communicate to your brain, telling your brain that it's really hot. Is that going to bring comfort to you, like to know why it happened that way? No. No. And so most of us ask the question, why, 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 God, why did you allow this? But if God really showed up and answered that question, like, point by point, I'm not sure that's going to do a whole lot of good for you. I'm not sure it's going to bring great comfort to you if you know every single reason why we suffer. And so the Bible doesn't lay out for us the answer to those kinds of questions all the time. But what God does show us is how we can respond to suffering, especially the kind that's brought about by someone sinning against us. So turn all the way over to Luke chapter 6. Go to Luke chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 27. Luke six twenty-seven, And these are the words of Christ. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do you know what stands out about this passage to me? Is that he's not just saying someone who treats you poorly, just ignore them or don't be mean to them. But he goes the other extreme and says, no, do good to that person. Like that requires effort. So so it's not just, okay, just try to avoid them at all costs. Try not to retaliate. But the command here is actually do good towards this kind of person. This is, these are hard words. These are really hard words, Jesus is saying. And so if someone hits you on the cheek, you say, you forgot about this one. Or if someone takes something from you, give them something extra. Do you know how hard this would be for someone back then? Because Christ is talking to the poor right now when he says this. And so someone who is already impoverished and someone has stolen something from them and Christ is saying, give them something else. Like, well, I don't have anything else to give. They've taken what I have. These are really hard words for the people that he's speaking to. 
So the question is, how does someone do that? Like, how does someone not just avoid and ignore a person like that, but how do you actually go and show them the love of Christ and, and, and do something good to them? Like, how do you actually do that? How do you get there? And I'll, I'll say again, this all goes back to how you view God. What does it say in Isaiah? It says, even though you suffer, you're mine. He says, I'm with you. He says, you're precious to me, and I love you. And so only someone, listen, only someone who has this view of God, only that kind of person is the kind of person that can treat their enemy in that way. Only someone who still sees God as good, who still sees God as holy, is the kind of person who can treat their enemy in this way. It all goes back to how you view God in the midst of this kind of suffering. In fact, I would say that if you don't treat your enemies like this, then you've got a wrong view of God. Can you imagine if in this coming school year, I talk a lot about community at the beginning of the year because I know what's coming. I know what happens once school starts. Can can you imagine if in this school year, if just the people in this room lived this way in this coming year? If you treat your enemies like this in this coming year, can you imagine how that could transform this youth group? Can you imagine um, if no one left this community because of someone sinning against them? Now, sin's going to happen. I'm not going to lie about that. Sin's going to happen. But can you imagine if, if your view of God was so great and, and you still saw him as good and you still saw the church as his instrument of goodness in the world, if you still saw the church that way, in spite of what might happen to you this year from the people in this room, this all goes back to how you view God and how you see him, even when someone sins against you. And so in verse 31, if you're, if you're wondering how to treat someone who sins against you, verse 31 is pretty clear. He says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And so if you want to know, okay, how do I treat someone who sins against me? Well, how would you like to be treated? Do you like being gossiped about, slandered, made fun of, talked about behind your back, ignored, cursed at? Do you enjoy those kinds of things when people do those things to you? So how would you like to be treated? How would you like someone else to treat you? And again, Jesus is not saying that we should just ignore the mean people. He's saying do good to them. Do good to them. Look down at verse 32. It says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So if you love those who love you, and you do good to those who do good to you, congratulations. You're simply just doing what everyone else does. That's the natural response. That's the natural thing to do. There's nothing supernatural about that. And so what he's saying is that um, there is nothing special about that, if you just treat someone good because they treat you good. 
the supernatural response, the one where someone goes, wait, that's kind of interesting. The supernatural response is when someone is mean and evil to you, and you can return that with goodness. When you overcome evil with good, that actually gets someone thinking. That actually makes someone go, wait, what? That is not what I expected. There's something supernatural about that. Look at verse 35. It says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So why does God want us to do all this? He wants us to do this because it's what he does. He wants us to be merciful because he's merciful. He wants us to show grace because he shows grace. Are you getting this picture? That whatever, whoever God is, he wants us as Christians to present a proper and right view of himself to the world. Is it any wonder that when people look at the lives of Christians, they begin to doubt who God is and question the validity of our faith? Is that any wonder? Because God knows that the way people view us is the way they're going to view him. And he does not want his name being defamed. He wants his name to be glorified and given honor and praise. And so this is why, because he's merciful, he wants us to be merciful. Imagine how crazy it would be, listen, for someone to come before God, you realize you're sinful before him, you realize that he's holy and perfect And you come before God and you put your life in his hands, you surrender your life to him, and you receive his grace and his mercy, and then someone sins against you, and your response is, that's it, you're going to pay. That's it. Like, you'll pay for this. If someone can't show grace and mercy, then the question is, have they really received it? If someone can't show the grace and mercy of Jesus, then do they have Jesus? So, so if, you, if you and I were his enemies and he had mercy on us and he brought us into his family, how can we not show the same kind of mercy to our enemies? You know, our biggest temptation, of course, whenever we're sinned against is not to do good, but it's to get revenge. It's not just to ignore and run away. It's actually to fight and get revenge. Romans twelve nineteen. look on the screen with me if you will addresses this. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. Do you realize how freeing this verse is? Just think about this for a minute. When someone sins against you, you get that lump in your throat, that little ball of energy that just wants to come out and curse at them, right? I've got to do something about this. If I don't do something about this, then who will? Well, this verse says that Jesus will. This verse says that God will. Look how freeing this verse is. This verse sets you free of that mindset of I've got to pay this person back. We get to release that to God. We get to release that to him. 
And some of you might say, but, but I don't want to release that to him. I'm not sure he's going to handle it the right way. And there it is. At the root of revenge is a fundamental distrust of God and his goodness. At the root of getting someone back is this distrust of, God, I don't trust you to handle it. I don't want to put it in your hands. I don't trust you to handle it the right way. This verse sets us free from this kind of thinking. Another way to put this verse would be this next slide. Every sin against us is paid for by Jesus or paid back by Jesus. So I don't want you to think of God as just just the God who gets people back, but he's also the God that shows mercy and grace and love and compassion. And so if someone comes in and puts their faith and trust in him, all of their sins, past, present, and future, are paid for and absorbed by the cross. That's the gospel. But if someone does not surrender life to Christ, does not submit their life to him, then yes, at some point, they will get their just dues. God is a God of justice. He is a God of justice. And that person, without faith in Christ before they die, they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. That's biblical. And so either way, sin is either paid for by Jesus or paid back by him. God is a God of justice. And we don't rejoice in the fact that some um, choose to not come to know him, but it is reality. So think of how freeing it is, listen, to know that you don't have to walk through life keeping score. Think of how freeing it is to know that you don't have to walk through life keeping a checklist of who's wronged you, how you're going to get them back, how you're going to get revenge on them, because this verse sets us free from that, because whatever happens to us, God's going to make it right. We can release that to him. And so if you're, if you're someone who is a person of vengeance, revenge, at the root of that is how you view God. You don't see him as good. You don't think you can trust him. And this verse says, God, God has it. He's got it. He's got it. And if you're someone this morning and you're kind of a skeptic and you're thinking to yourself, well, that seems kind of odd that God would be considered a God of vengeance and wrath towards sin. I mean, isn't that kind of hypocritical? I mean, God tells us not to do that. Like, look at the verse. It says, it says, don't be vengeful. So wait, how can God be vengeful but then tell us not to be vengeful? And here's what God does. The reason why God says for you not to be vengeful is because it's his right to be a God of justice. It's his right to be that, which is why you don't have that right. You and I don't have that right. And so um, this morning, as you guys go to your breakouts in just a minute, um, this is where the cross comes in. When you and I truly understand what Christ did on the cross, only then can you and I pour out love towards someone who is an enemy. And I'll give you an invitation this morning, a, a, a response this morning. If you're not a believer, you've been living your life with this checklist of who I'm going to pay back. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, he releases that for you. Like you get to put that in his hands. You get to live a much less stressful life, right? If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you're a believer, 
Maybe you've been harboring resentment and judgment and unforgiveness towards people who have wronged you. And this verse says you get to release that to him. The cross either paid for it or God will pay it back. Either way. You can release that to him this morning. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to go to our breakouts here in a second. Um, you guys, uh, for the leaders, when you guys get to your, um, to your breakout rooms, you will have some, uh, some cards in there that I want you to have your students fill out afterwards with some pens. And these are basically activities that they're involved in in school that we want to have them write down so we kind of know where to kind of how go and see, and, and, and see what they're involved in at school. And so you can do that at the end of your discussion today. Um, I've got discussion sheets over there on the ping pong table. I think upperclassmen guys are staying in here, but everyone else should have a room that's labeled with your uh, grade and gender. So go ahead and head that way. And leaders, grab discussion sheets off the uh, ping pong table and have your discussions.